Hi, this is the Clyde Carter Bible Study, and I'm Bob Dickinson, the current leader of this ongoing study at New Horizon United Methodist Church in Southwest Ranches, Florida. Today, Craig Chaddock and I will be studying Isaiah's chapters 2 through 4, so I invite you to grab your Bible and join with us. Our primary choice of translations is the New International Version, but we will use other translations on occasions when they're helpful. We're looking at having kind of discussed thoroughly chapter one. We're now looking at the second area, which uh, some of the people... Hmm. I thought we'd made it through chapter two. Well, okay. On the recording... I think you're right. I would like to go back and touch a little bit on chapter two. Okay. Because I'm not sure that we said what is said here. Chapter one was really about the destruction of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And Chapter 2 kind of talks a little bit about salvation for the remnant. The mountain of the Lord is kind of the way he uh, Isaiah talks about the people of God. Uh, yes. Those who are chosen out, not always obediently, but uh, frequently... Well, there's that old song about ain't misbehaving, and that that doesn't apply to them. Well, yes, the the remnant were were chosen by God. They weren't necessarily better, but maybe not quite as bad. The idea of the height of Jerusalem, however, in reality, uh, Zion was not the highest physical location in that area. So the reference was not really to the height of Jerusalem, but the fact that people would come, he prophesied, from all nations would come to Jerusalem as the seat of where wisdom could be could be had. So that was a I think an important point. Sometimes Fiddler on the Roof, Tevye, talks about being poor, and he says it's no great honor, but uh, it is my condition. Uh, they are the chosen one of, of uh, God. And sometimes they're not sure it's a great honor. <laughs> <laughs> Traditionally, uh, the prophets... Uh, were to plead to God on behalf of the people. Mm-hmm. However, in this situation, it's uh, Isaiah hammering on the people, giving them the word of God. In fact, uh, in verse uh, 9 of chapter 2, he literally says, do not forgive them, Lord. That's kind of a a heavy statement. He preached against pride. We all have that touching us. 
And I guess that brings us to uh, chapter 3. 3 and 4 is a continuation of this same sermon, mm-hmm. according to some that seem to know more than I. And the first thing he talks about is what God is going to do with the leadership of of Jerusalem. And one of the consequences of failure to worship God wholeheartedly would be a leadership vacuum. And it was in all areas, in government, in military, in the temple. Anybody that had a position of leadership are the ones that the Assyrians marched out and spread out all over the Middle East and even up into Turkey, Mm -hmm. which is uh, involving Europe. So there was a dispersion, but it was of the royal people, the leaders, and that left the people in Jerusalem rudderless. Interesting. In the process of sailing, in order for the wind to be able to move you, you have to have a a keel and then a rudder. The keel that makes the boat go straight, unless something changes that, and the rudder that you use to change the the course. Mm -hmm. A rudder with no keel doesn't do anything but uh, provide a pivot point for the boat to spin around. <laughs> uh, a keel with no rudder means that it's always going to go in the same direction and is not sterile, but the two together work very well. Having leaders that don't listen to God, don't follow God, having a nation that's chosen by God is like having a keel. Like that's the direction you're supposed to go, and the boat's going to go in that direction unless you, you, you decide to change it on its own. It's just going to go there. So there's a, a sense that God not only claims the people, uh, he's built into them a, a willingness to come to him and submit themselves to him and be led by him. And they get in trouble when they forget that. They get into the place where they think they know better than God, and Fortunately, God knows better than that. Amen. Reminds them. Absolutely. The good part about a rudder is that it gives you the ability to change the direction. Uh, The bad part is you get to choose, and if you don't have something to steer by, you're in deep stuff. Starting in chapter 3, verse 16, he moves from the leadership to uh, the ladies. He gets uh, pretty serious. In the beginning, verse uh, 1 or 2 in chapter 3, he explains who the people are that are going to be dispersed out of Jerusalem. And it's the police, the judges and courts, the pastors and teachers, the captains and generals, the doctors and nurses, literally any and everyone that had a leadership role. You can, you can say, well, that's good. We got the bad people out. Now the boat will go straight. Well, except that it doesn't. 
Well, because the people don't know how to govern. Again, I see so much correlation with our current position. We did a lot of good things. I say we. This country in the last four years and somehow we're changing everything around. We're undoing it all. Yes. We'll see how far that goes. But see now the Lord, the Lord Almighty, take from Jerusalem and Judea both supply and support. All supply of food, all supplies of waters, heroes, warriors, judges, prophets, diviners, elders, captain of fifty, and the men of rank, counselors, craftsmen, clever enchanters. That list is scary because I have a hard time figuring out where I fit in that yeah. list. Yeah. <laughs> Which part do you want to take on? <laughs> right. God says I'll put little kids in charge of the city. Schoolboys and schoolgirls will order everyone around. People will be at each other's throat, neighbor against neighbor, young against old, and no account against the well-respected. One brother will grab another and say, you look like you've got a head on your shoulders. Do something. Get us out of this mess. And he'll say, me? Not me. I don't have a clue. Don't put me in charge of anything. I have no food. I have no clothing in my house. Don't make me the leader of the people. Yeah. Jerusalem staggers. Judea falls. Judah falls. Their words and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The look on their face testifies against them. They parade their sins like Sodom. They do not hide it. And then we come to verse 16. God says, Zion women are stuck up, prancing around in their high heels, making eyes at all the men in the street, swinging their hips, tossing their hair, gaudy and garish in a cheap jewelry. The master will fix it so those Zion women will all turn bald, scrubbly, bald-headed women. The master will do it. The downside of women's lib, I guess. I guess so, yes. Going on, verse 24. Instead of fragrance, there will be stench. Instead of sash, a rope. Instead of a well-dressed hair, bald. Instead of fine clothing, sackcloth. Instead of beauty, branding. Your men will fall by the sword. Your warriors in battle. The gates of Zion will lament and mourn. Destitute, she will sit on the ground. Sounds like a good time to be somewhere else. I guess so. The thrust of this uh, section, interestingly enough, and it's the only place I found this so pointed. Paul gets a little bit into it, but not nearly as dramatic. Against women. It was pride that was the basis. The women would come in and assume a regal position even when it wasn't warranted. If 
the men were all taken away. The men were the designated leaders and therefore were dispersed out so that uh, they couldn't interact with the people. The women were left and the children were left. And the underlying premise is that if you take those who are not prepared to rule and fit to rule, that the results would be disastrous. And that's that's a road that, as America, Americans, we have a hard time going down. Yeah. So what does happen when there's a vacuum of leadership? What does happen when death or attrition or stolen election or whatever uh, things get turned sideways? And the first answer is that Zion is God's chosen, uh, that the mountain of the Lord is literally the if not the highest hill in Jerusalem, it is uh, the central place where God has chosen to meet people and Mm -hmm. to claim them and to reorient them and set them in order the way he wants them set in order. The second second movement, the Day of the Lord, which started around 6, and talks about... um, Here's what's going to happen to the way you've ordered everything, which is not the way I want it ordered. And at that point, he lists all the things that Zion's doing that cause his teeth to grit. At this point, we were interrupted by a telephone call. The problem is when I turn mine off, and put it back in its holster. That's where it stays. And I'm always surprised nobody calls me. <laughs> and uh, uh, when I go to church, Carol does not go to church anymore, primarily because she doesn't want to leave mother. Yep. She isn't really thrilled that I go because she thinks I'm going out and collecting germs and bringing them back. But uh, I can't abide not going for very long. Uh, I just can't. Uh, you heard that Helen Roanfeld died. Yes. And interestingly enough, Carol was talking with her two days before she went into the hospital. Mm. And uh, her loss was Carol's loss. I don't know if if you're aware, but Helen, when she moved from the west coast of Florida over here, was looking for a church home. And she worked for Burdines as Lee did. Lee was a manager of of the shop, of, of a store. She was a buyer. So they they had an awareness of each other. I wouldn't say they were exactly friends, but they were co-workers. So he suggested, according to her, she shared this with, with Carol two days before she died, that Lee said, why don't you come to my church? And she did, and she came to stay, became a part of the staff, uh, didn't have seminary training, but she had business training, and she, well, she was the assimilation pastor, you know, 
call it that, Lee brought her to uh, our church. You just don't know what happens. She then became very involved with uh, the Haiti mission, traveled to Haiti, I don't know, several times a year, raised money, coordinated things, and now the Lord says, I need need you up here. And that really rocked Carol's boat. She had talked to her. Helen, by the way, is the first person, either Carol or I, had a personal relationship that died from COVID. 500,000 people in the United States have died. But none that we knew personally, except and until Helen Groenfeld. So, when I came to Gloria Day, experienced Helen as a very strong spiritual person from the sense, sense of being centered in the Lord and centered in what the Lord wanted this piece of the body of God to do. Mm-hmm. And she became a focal point in that sense, but a good friend, uh, journey of faith. I, I do not know what Lloyd will do without her. I don't suspect he'll stay around very long. I, well, he's in the hospital. Unfortunately, this past year, saying someone's in the hospital is almost saying they're slipping away. Yeah. It used to be hospitals were where you went to keep get better. Get better. But somehow that, that well, hasn't worked out this past year. There are two forms of medical care. There's hospice, which is making people comfortable as the natural processes of life continue to do their work. And then there's uh, hospital care, which is an aggressive, all-out attempt by every means possible to heal you and get you better. Mm -hmm. Um, The downside of the aggressive attempt to make you better is that 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 puts you and everybody else that's really, really, really sick in the same place. That's proof to be the undoing of a lot of folk. Yeah. Well, we kind of got off subject a little bit there. I'm sorry, I I tend to wander. Verse 3 of chapter 4. The chapter behind you. He refers to those who are left. We talked about the dispersion of uh, the royal families, the educated, the leaders... And what was left is the remnant, which is now what he's saying. Those who are left. That phrase, I'm told, appears 27 times in Isaiah with the double meaning of disaster and hope. And chapter 4 introduces a little bit of that hope. He's saying, okay, now with remnant, we've talked about the people in in the church, in the temple. We've talked about uh, people in the courts and uh, the elders. Now, who's left? And it's the remnant. There's an interesting corollary here. If you take away all the people that think they're the leaders, if you take away all the people that act like leaders, if you take away all of the people that uh, run organizations, that which is left is somehow less, quote-unquote, 
than what the whole people would be if they were all still there. Yet it is exactly that group that God chooses to form and mold into what he wants his people to be. You know the scary part about that? So all the Bible study leaders are gone. <laughs> well, not quite all. He now is, is talking about what is happening. He says, this is now going to be a time without war when nations would stream to God's chosen place to learn his teaching. And it's a time of fertility and beauty. What verse are you on now? Four, six, four, five, and six. It's this hope that he's building on. World peace depends on God's actions and our obedience to his law. And five says it this way, and then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over all the who assemble there a spirit of fire, and then the Lord, and there will be a column of smoke and by day and a glowing flame by night over everything, and the glory will be a canopy, and it will shelter and shade them from the heat of the day and be a refuge place from the storm and the rain. This is shadows of the Exodus. Yes. God's leading officially day and night. I left you alone and you've wandered off, so I'm coming back and I'm grabbing you by the ring in your nose and I'm going to take you where you need to go. Is almost the, yep. the, the sense of the thing. But it's also a hope. And it's a hope for, and going back to verse 3, back this hope is for those who are left, the remnant, the ones that don't know how to run the government, don't know how to run the temple, don't know how to do anything except whatever agricultural pursuit they are involved with, and that's it. But God said, there's hope. We're going to start again. He led them out of Egypt, and now he's leading them out of pride. Four is just a short little thing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Very short. My Bible has an interesting collection of uh, adornments of uh, the ladies. <laughs> uh, earrings and bobs and uh, beads and all sorts of different things that they use to adorn themselves. Isaiah uses one word to describe what God wants. Shalom. It means peace, wholeness, fulfillment. I want that, but I cannot achieve it. I must accept it as God's gift to me and praise him for such a marvelous gift. Devotion to and worship of God brings what I need, not devotion to work and achievement. And that's where the people that got dispersed were, they were impressed with what they had accomplished, what they owned, what they had, their uh, ability to lead. Isaiah becomes the voice of the things that God wants for the people. In chapter 5, the song of the vineyard is uh, basically God singing about the things that make wholeness. I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug out and cleansed 
its stones, planted it with choice vines, built a watchtower, cut out a wine press as well, and he made the and then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but the yield was bad fruit. I'm in five verses one through one and two there. Mm-hmm. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and you people of G- Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? I planted for good grapes. Why did it yield only bad ones? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do with this vineyard. I want to take away the hedge. I want to, and it will be destroyed. I'll break down the walls and it'll be trampled. I'll take, I'll make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. Briars and thorns will grow there, and I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord God Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah. The vines are that he delights in, and he looks for justice, but saw bloodshed for righteousness and heard cries of distress. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field until there's no space left and you live alone on the land. The way Israel understood itself was that it received the land from God's hand and each person and each tribe and each uh, family within the tribe received a birthright. Mm -hmm. And so everybody had their own place. But as people managed to manipulate and uh, pervert the organization that God had, had chosen and set up, the land began to concentrate itself in a few people, and there were more and more landless people, people who didn't have a way to support themselves, people who had to live uh, generosity of the people who had, and that was slim. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been to San Francisco in the last 10 years? No, no, I was there. I don't know, a long, long time ago, I probably in the uh, 80s. It used to be one of the most beautiful cities I'd ever seen. But, uh, it now, is, it's a garbage heap. Yeah, it has become a, a dumping ground for people and all of the things that people shed uh, all over the streets and all over the, the parks and all over everywhere. Those who are landless and uh, without resource and have to depend on what they can garner through skill or guile or force, mayhem. And I'm not sure all of those people are evil, but they do share a hopelessness. Well, when this talks about joining fields to fields and houses to houses so that uh, a family of five can have what uh, would have supported uh, 200, uh, then you start to see the same thing happening again. Again, I see in Isaiah's first couple of sermons, in starting with chapter 1 and now going into the uh, first edge of chapter 5, he sprinkles in God's folk for people, but a lot of what is happening, he's chronicling the reason that chastisement is coming to Jerusalem. And I think it's coming to America. You know, I, one of the things that always impressed me about Helen was that her, 
her main thrust was never to take the church that she was serving and make that the the thing that was the thing, rather to take uh, people who were people of God who were gathered together and show them what the need was, where the need was most poignant, and then lift up ways for them to be engaged in it and to connect with the broken heart of God for the people who were clinging to the side of a dirt hill where all the trees had been cut down. In this uh, Holman Old Testament commentary, the author of this commentary offers a prayer, and I think it's, it's, it's worth us thinking about as well. He writes, Thank you, O God, that you are a God of hope. Thank you that you have a plan to bring peace and protection to your people. Forgive my arrogance and pride. Take away the temptation to concentrate on what I have accomplished and what I own. Teach me your ways and your law. Give me the heart to follow where you lead so that I may truly participate in your day of deliverance. Amen. This was, I think, the overriding problem that hit Jerusalem. They started believing that they were in charge. And I see that same problem happening in America today. At one point, religion was a very important part of our entire social aspect. Our communities were wrapped around. That has changed, and not for the good. In my own growing up, we grew up in one church for the first uh, 21 years of my life. We didn't move. We, Mom and Dad were, well, Dad was a trustee and a teacher of uh, teenage class, and Mom ran uh, MYF in the UMW, at least partially, and in, in all of those, the, the thrust was always... Where is God leading us next? What does he want us to be claimed by, molded by, and shaped by? And I think that's what Isaiah is crying out to his people. Um, mm -hmm. You know, stop stop being impressed with stuff and start being attentive to God's call to be the remnant, the, uh, the faithful that listen and follow and are moldable those that are left to that which the Lord is calling us to. So it's not the latest UMW program that moves the church. It is the piece of the human condition that's lifted before us so that somehow we're invited to watch God work his reclaiming justice and mercy in the midst of the mess we've made. So have, have we done chapter 4 justice or do we need is there anything else we need to say to that no chapter three i think we're up chapter five okay that would be nice so in five verse eight becomes the woe and the judgment uh, he's uh, laid out the case of what what happened to the vineyard chapter seven or verse seven says the vineyard of the almighty lord is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines that he delights in and he looks for justice but saw bloodshed for righteousness but saw but heard cries of distress and then eight is the, the judgment and the woes 
Woe to you who add house to house, join field to field, until there's no space left, and you live alone on the land. The Almighty has declared in my hearing, Surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. The ten-acre vineyards will produce only a bath of wine and a homer of seeds will, be yield, will yield an ephod of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after drink, and who stay up late at night until they're inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and timbrels and, and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord and no respect for the work of His Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Makes you want to duck. And like I said, I see America where Israel was in Isaiah's day. Isaiah could be saying this to America. We have we have changed things around, and not any of it for good. And yet the, the whole tenor of this thing is, you've made a mistake, I've come to lead you back into the center of where I want you and what I want you to be. That's the hope, yes. Isaiah has two hands. With one hand, he clubs you, and with the other hand, he offers hope. Puts a bandage on your head where he clubbed you. Yeah. The temptation is always to become the interpreter of Isaiah to the point where you say, well, this program that the current administration is offering is good or bad based on what I think Isaiah would have said about it if he'd been here to say something about it. <laughs> and our temptation is to become prophet's interpreter. Again, and as I read Isaiah, I keep bumping into the club and the open hand. And it's that hope that we are excited about. We haven't gotten there yet, but getting up into chapter 6, we have the absolute answers to all the problems that Jerusalem had. Well, we better stop before we get there. <laughs> you, you, you look at the history of the people of God, and, uh, you know, from from the Cain and Abel story uh, through the, the experience of the peoples uh, in the wilderness after Egypt uh, to the entry into the land and the, the fight to clear out the folks that were there, at each phase, there's a, a temptation to put yourself in the place of the one who's interpreting for the Lord and telling the people where to go and what to do. And Do you want to be a prophet? I don't know. I don't think so. I think I'm one of those people that knows a lot, and I know enough that I don't know anything. <laughs> the temptation for someone who assumes to be the interpreter of God's will is pride, and Isaiah emphasizes that over and over again. It's what the temptation to be impressed with what I have learned, what I can share, what I can do, what I have, and we forget that all of it, the knowledge, the intelligence, things, the reputation, it's all from God. And the more you study the Word, the more you think you begin to understand enough to say something meaningful. And as soon as you do that, you've presumed a mantle doesn't belong to you. I think that's wisely said. So you ask me, would I like to be a prophet? 
I have to say no. I wonder if Isaiah wanted to be a prophet. Well, even even Moses. Moses argued with God and said, not me, Lord. Yeah, find the guy behind the next burning bush. Yeah. <laughs> I'm busy. And God said, I'll be with you. I'll give you the words. I'll give you the attitude. I'll give you the knowledge, the wisdom. And Moses finally, reluctantly... Picked up his snake and walked down the street. Yeah. <laughs> but Isaiah, and we see that even in chapter 1, where he was the counselor, the confidant of four different kings. That's an impressive thing to be. And during that time, many followed what he said, and many more did not. Would you want to be the counselor to a king? I don't know. That's kind of like the first question. <laughs> <laughs> well, to read the scripture and to hear the call of uh, the scripture on us to be active is one thing. To assume that uh, all the folks that have those impulses have been taken off and uh, spread throughout the land so they can't stir up trouble. And what's left is the folks who just go to work every day and round the corners on 3,000 widgets that day and then uh, go home at night and don't rock the boat. Yeah. That, that's almost what it sounds like uh, you know, after you take away all the leaders and all of the teachers and all of the magicians and all of the other things you're describing there. That's what's left is the widget wobblers. But again, in the statement, those that are left is hope. It's the widget wobblers that are formed into the people of God. Yeah. Well, that's enough to make me put this book down and quit that silliness. <laughs> I think uh, as we get into it, chapter 5, is, and especially chapter 6, is going to bring uh, some answers. So I look forward to our discussions. Let's see what he does with the widget wobblers. Perhaps we should uh, close with prayer. Actually, we did not open with prayer. No, we didn't. But I think the Lord was in our discussions anyway. Do widget wobblers know how to pray? As it works out, according to Paul, God gives us the words. He gives us the thoughts. He gives us the ability, if only we will accept it and take it from it. In my experience of our group, as I talk to them each week, uh, every call is monumentally different. You know, it's not like I have, uh, here's what I'm going to say to everybody, and uh, I say it, and then we hang up. It is a encounter with people in the midst of life, with the highs and the lows and the goods and the bads, and the, the stories that come relate to the, the different uh, things that are going on. And in the midst of that, we offer each other hope, encouragement, and at the end of the session, I walk away more hopeful than when I started, which I think is Isaiah's invitation too. Mm -hmm. But in the encounter with the mountain of God that God's going to bring the people to uh, from all over the world, that the agenda that's lifted up is not ours, but is, is at least that's what we hope and pray for. Yeah. Holy Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for your leading. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your prophets. We thank you for the reflection that they shine on each of us that approaches the word. Simply humble us and allow us to hear what you would say about our world today and about the people that are 
placed in our care and in our path and in our in our loves and in our life. Lead us in such a way that those who light the way, like Helen and those that have led us to engage so many beyond our normal grasp, that they may become the field of your action and the power of your spirit in such a way that uh, is made alive and attainable by flesh and blood. We know, Lord, that your intention for us is wholeness and holiness. So we simply stop and ask what you would have us do today. How would you have us serve? How would you have us call people into your presence and uh, rejoice when they come? Be with us and allow our words to be your words. Allow our heart to be your heart that we may find in the world the hope that you see for your redeemed people. In Jesus' name we pray.